Now and Again is brought to you by the Cage Club Podcasting Network. For all things Cage, Keanu, and more, head on over to cageclub.me. That is cageclub.me. It's the end of 2002. The Iraq War protests are in full swing. Lance Armstrong wins Sportsman of the Year. Whoops. And Nicolas Cage and Lisa Marie Presley get divorced. Hashtag Cage Club. And this is Now That's What I Call Music, Volume 11. We play this song on the radio. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back. It's now and again. This is volume 11. With us today, an old favorite, and I guess there's some big news. More regular co-hosts in the future, Nico Vasillo. Hey guys, what's up? I love being here. I love doing this. Couldn't be more grateful. This is the one-year anniversary of the first now and again, uh, though the we recorded the first episode last June. It just took a while for it to get out. Yeah. So, so we're but the first anniversary of the release, and um, yeah, I knew I had you on the first episode for a reason, uh, because I knew that we would we would be able to navigate this minefield, pop music and silliness and memories pretty well together. And uh, I was not wrong. And it'll be nice to have you on more episodes in the future. Yeah, because there's nothing more frustrating than when I'm listening at the gym and like I literally because when I know I'm doing an episode, I like to like listen to my favorite bits and I keep all of them on my phone organized and out of no, I don't even remember what part it was because I was skipping around all my favorites. But all of a sudden I went, no, that's not what you're supposed to think about that song. Like, <laughs> I was like, OK, I have way too many opinions about this music to not to not share them more often. So I'm super thrilled to be here. Yeah, you won't have to backseat podcast really that often anymore. Because, dude, I'm getting so tired of, like, the guys at the gym, like, looking up at me like, what's wrong with you? And I just want to be like, what? I have Tourette's. How judgmental are you? Why is that guy screaming about Janet Jackson? Uh, well, actually, no, that's a normal day at the gym. It's more like True. when I'm screaming about Britney Spears. Why isn't that guy screaming about Janet Jackson? I actually kind of walk around the gym listening to Rhythm Nation all the time. So I just sort of, like, walk up to people like, love will never... Can I work in? Thank you. Without you. People in my gym, I think, just... I think they're just happy when I don't talk to them. <laughs> Do you so. get asked for spots infrequently? Honestly, like people, like I, I, it's really funny, and I only can say that this is true with like certainty because I've had other people be there and see it happen. Like people, because I'm like I'm kind of like I'm not like huge or anything, but I'm big enough, dude, that guys like come over to ask me to spot them, and uh, I see them coming, but that doesn't stop me from doing my weird hand movements and like my singing, <laughs> and uh, so like a guy like fucking huge dude and like a stringer will like walk over to me and as he's approaching i'll just be like it was just hey man like what's up then they run away i'm sorry to hear that right because i don't think you've experienced anything till you've had me spot you and do my little like shimmy dance and pelvic thrust while i'm supposed to be holding the bar ah well it's uh um getting hot in here isn't it nelly And oh my god, why did this penetrate our cultural vernacular the way it did? That's a really great question. Um, are you referring to, of course, um, the double R that is occurring? The sentence itself. Um, when I think about songs that received a phenomenal amount of parody in a short period of time, this is in that category. It doesn't matter what's going on. But if, if anybody's ever like, oh god, it's really hot. Somebody goes, so hot and her? So take off all your clothes. Oh, God. Or, like, the, the number of people, like, okay, and that first time you did, because this came out in 2002, so we were in 10th grade. Yep. Oh, yeah, we should do that. Uh, November 2002. We'll come back to that, but yeah. Um, 
when we were in 10th grade, if somebody was like, it's getting cold in here, I'm going to put on all my clothes. It was cute. By the time you were 18, it was cloying. By the time you were 22, you were kind of like, really, dude? And like now I'm just sort of like, oh, my God, why was hot in here even popular enough for cold in here to be a thing multiple people said? Yeah, the St. Louis rap scene was really blowing up around this time. There was a lot coming out of here, and Nelly was, you know, he had the St. Lunatics riding with him. And the other thing that was amazing about Nelly is how much of Nelly's lyricism was on Nelly's own terms. I don't necessarily think he's the world's greatest rapper. I think he had a bunch of things going for him. He had a handsome face. He was from a great area to be from at the time. Yeah. He um pretty good body and wasn't afraid to show it off. He had his own sense of language. Even when you think about his, his first major smash, uh, Country Grammar, mm-hmm. right? When you think about all yep. of those lyrics, everything about it is a personality. It's why I tell my students when they're going to write something, I don't care what you're writing, if it's an essay, if it's a book, if it's a, an epic poem. Um, I don't care how good it is. As long as it's got a point of view, I'm interested. And Nelly really brought a point of view to the table. Nelly didn't come to play anybody else's rap game. He came to play his own. And I do think maybe we just answered our own question. Maybe it's not that Hot in Here was so, – but Hot in Here was produced by the Neptunes, right? I what? was just going to say he had this secret thing that only a few rappers around this time had that made them really blow up. And it's the fucking Neptunes in the booth. You need to look at every – like the, track one, two, and four on this yep. now are all the Neptunes. And, yes. you know, I've spoken at length about my love for Pharrell. It, it's just that, and you always know a Nelly song. Not a Nelly, I'm sorry. You always know a Pharrell song when you hear it. Um, yep. It's got that bang, bang, bang kind of feel to it. You know what I mean? It almost sounds like it's it's going through a magical mirror into the '70s, but really high quality. Yeah, we, we've spoken about this before. That like a lot of the producers around this time, you know, when a Timbaland song is on, you know, when a Dre song is on, and if for no other reason, Pharrell is comfortable being Pharrell. You know what I mean? Like, the way we just said Nelly is comfortable being Nelly. This is a really great example of two awesome minds coming together to craft a track that you're never going to forget. Right. And it, it penetrated that culture. It's got a sense of humor to it without being, like, a gimmick song, which it, it could have been. Like, it could have been dangerously close to a thrift shop kind of song. Yeah, it's that humor of I think my butt's getting big. This plays into a lot of the same things we said that were ludicrous as strengths. Yeah, that's a good point. It's sexy. It's fun. The video is so well lit. It does at times look like uh, a Gaspar Noé film. Yeah. This video is a video that became synonymous with the song. And it didn't just become synonymous with the song because Nelly had great abs. It became synonymous with the song because the video looked like a Pharrell song sounds. That's yeah, that's really accurate. Holy shit. Yeah, I I love this song, actually. I think, uh, I don't care for the song, but I love everything about what makes it special. Yeah, the the chorus is, like like you said, it became a joke immediately because it is writing that line of gimmick song versus just genuinely, like, silly and fun song. And I'm glad it fell on, I would argue it fell on the side of just, you know, quality pop songwriting. Uh, but, you know... When that woman's voice comes in, it's pretty silly. Well, especially because what she says is absolutely goddamn ridiculously stupid. Um, and the same thing that he just said with dumber words, like just it's like she yodas it back at him. Well, and but let's even take into consideration the video and some of the other lyrics. He's saying it's getting hot in here. 
So take off all your clothes as they're dancing at this club. And she's like, whew, I'm getting so hot. I'm going to take my clothes off. It kind of sounds like they're, it sounds like her response is a little bit kind of non-con, like a little bit drunk. Oh. She says word for word the same thing he says in a breathy, kind of out of it voice while he physically describes her and talks to her like she's an object. There is something predatory about this song. I think the predatory nature of the song is what softens the silly in places. Um, hmm. You know, it, it it is the kind of thing where I would be super excited to hear, you know, Nicki Minaj, sweetie, don't do not do Baby Got Back. Everyone did Baby Got Back. Do this. Make your own hot in her and, and right. turn that paradigm around and, you know, make some weird joke about I think your dick is sticking out instead of my butt's getting big. And have fun with it. Play on the gender roles of it. Because the thing about this song is it is a little predatory, a little silly, very Nelly, very Pharrell. And probably could you probably could not find a better song to start 2002. This song was not just a song. It was pop culture for a little while. And this is just the first of uh, a lot of Pharrell we'll see. And let's just roll right into uh, nothing by, I mean, is it N-O-R-E or is it Nore? I don't, I don't actually know. Cause... It's, I mean, I always think of him as Noriega because that's who he's referencing, especially with a God's favorite and stuff. Um, you think so, yeah. No, I mean, it, it, it's, it's intentional direct referencing. Oh, okay. Um, the... Victor Santiago, I believe, and he was Nori Victor Santiago Senior. Maybe I don't know. Uh, he was Nori. Yeah, it is Victor Santiago Junior, and he was formerly Noriega, and I did not know that. Yeah, he was he was Noriega for a really long time, but there's such negative connotation on Noriega that I believe he was convinced to remove it ah. because of the cultural insensitivity. But I, I mean, obviously, I'm a little spotty on my Noriega, but God's favorite is actually his like big record. At least in, in in my memory, it was a a pretty a pretty big deal. It was a pretty killer track. Uh, it had a lot of. I mean, a pretty killer album. It had a lot of really big name guest spots. Actually, I had I did not know this song. I was surprised how much I liked it. Um, I was surprised how much of an earworm it was, especially. But I mean, it's a Pharrell song. As soon as I looked at that, I was like, oh, okay, that makes sense. Love that. Um, what instrument is that? It's like it's almost like a like a cliched like snake charmer riff yeah i actually think it's um sort of an element of the the timbaland inspired kind of digital take on 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 i think it's digital whatever it is i do think it's digital yeah probably oh god what song did this just make me think of out of nowhere um uh, is it all star because they reference that in the middle of the song for no reason no, I mean, like uh, it's actually like a recent song that I I, I don't care for that uses a similar he, instrument. Um, he was very far ahead of the curve on referencing All Star as a meme. Like uh, we're very if that had just gone to the course, we could have had like Noriega's nothing. But every time he references All Star, it speeds up by fifty percent, <laughs> and the internet would have collapsed on itself. Well, and don't forget that uh, we did that song uh, on our last now, where the guy references Miss Jackson, and the song isn't really old enough to be referenced yet. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So hip-hop has a love of referencing culture in a way that everybody understands to make it more, you know, when you do something universal, it sounds like absolutely nothing. When you do something personal and specific, everybody understands it. That's something hip-hop culture definitely gets down for it, the masses. It's it's so relatable 
uh, and it's 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 something that you can jump into. Of course, white people want to be a part of it. They think everything's theirs. Do you think part of that is why early 2000s hip hop, and I feel like that was doing this a lot. Um, I feel like early 2000s hip hop is none of it's outright bad, but almost all of it is pretty forgettable, too. Or at least it was designed to be disposable or at least felt more like it. It strikes me that it was all designed to reference five white, friendly black artists. There's Mary J. Blige, and then there's all the people doing bad Mary J. Blige. There's Destiny's Child. Then there is all of the people they churned out to try and sound like Beyonce. And I think Mm -hmm. that's what it is. The notables stand out, and there's a lot of filler. It's sort of the way... um, and I'm sure, you know, somebody's going to to shout at me that that's not a fair thing to say, but like cartel anything but yellow card. Mm. I mean, it's happening right now in, in hip hop as well. It's like, uh, you know, everyone's trying to be doing some trap inspired mumble rap. And I mean, I've, I haven't done a deep dive into it because I'm, you know, at, by design, 15 years behind on on relevant pop music. But what I'm hearing is all... There's some good, there's some very good stuff, and there's some very, very, very bad stuff. I don't know that I understand trap as a genre. I think it sounds like one or two cool songs per album, but when there's whole trap artists, I'm like, I don't, I don't, it's just not for me. I don't get it. It's super cool, but I don't know how that's a record. Man, we're gonna, we're gonna have really fun when we get to now 98 or whatever. Dude, I'm so excited. I'm like dying to get there. Well, we will probably be dead before we get there, uh, to be fair. I doubt that. I'm like, dude, I'm ready to be like, okay, we're done talking about Noriega. Let's talk about Eve featuring uh, Alicia Keys. Let's talk about it. It's- hey, that's a pretty good segue. Uh, w- uh, let's talk about Eve and Alicia Keys. Gangsta loving. What you gonna do about it? Why don't you discuss me? You won't want to do without it. No one coming at you all eating the thug. Number one, it is just that gangsta loving that's got me bugging. Number two, I actually think everything about this song is the fucking bomb shit. Uh, to be really, like, I I actually really dig when Eve appears on music. Uh, I like Eve a lot. I don't think she gets enough respect. Um, I thought all of those same things. Um, Eve has been a pleasant surprise on this now adventure. Welcome to the program, Alicia Keys. I wrote in my notes, Eve rules, but what kept her back? Why don't we remember Eve that fondly? And according to WikiWikiWawawpedia, uh, label issues in, I think it was like 2008, her album just got swallowed up and shelved and didn't come out for a very long time. And, you know, I think time just moved past that. And that's really unfortunate. There's another layer to it as well, which is really unfortunate. There's a number of unfortunate videos and, and pictures that have leaked over the years, of Eve and things she maybe had to do to make it. Oh, fuck. And whereas Nicki Minaj was like, if on some level my persona is silly, you're going to get past all the things you've heard about me taking every dick I can find, because fuck you, I made it. Where's your record number of singles off of a female hip-hop album? Which is a record she beat Lil' Kim for with her first album. Eve was pretty real. Eve was pretty hard. I really, I think she's a great time. She was the first time I ever heard of Swizz Beats, who later married Alicia Keys. So that's a really interesting connection. There's only one single after this on this record, on her first record. After this, it's her second album. So this is a really late time in Alicia Keys' storied, award-winning, record-breaking career. Oh, yeah. I think the thing about Gangsta Lovin' that 
maybe hurts it a little bit. Is that it's a bad Dr. Dre emulation by someone who's not Dr. Dre? Uh, I was going to say that it has very thin production. Yeah, well, there you go. Same same difference. Sounds like two amazing artists coming together to make a killer track and it not coming together. But this is also an interesting point because while many women in hip hop aren't able to make it by being with other women and they're, they're, they're sort of forced to rely on the assistance of men. If we even talk about um, Beyonce's first album, she had Jay-Z on one single. She mm-hmm. had Sean Paul on a single. But Eve did this with Alicia. Eve has two different duets with Gwen Stefani. Mm-hmm. Eve. Um, Both are great. Eve. Yeah. Eve's super cool. I actually super dig Eve. I'm sorry she wasn't more successful. She moved into acting for a little bit. Um, I was surprised when uh, I saw her face pop up on the cover of the Barbershop soundtrack, which is uh, one of the songs later on is uh, off of that. Um, so she dipped into that a little bit, but she's she's been gone a while and a lot of that wasn't her fault. And that is a shame because she's been one of the, uh, you know, over this year, I found some pleasant surprises that I, I didn't know about. Aaliyah was one of them. Eve is definitely another one. Yeah, they're, I mean, with the exception of this very average Aaliyah song on this now, there kind of wasn't a bad Aaliyah song. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I don't care too much for um, Ain't Nothing But a Number, but once you get to one yeah. in a million and on, it's brilliant. But yeah, it's a good song. It's a forgettable song. Uh, it's a fun song. Uh, I think the most memorable part of it is the humorous rhyming of loving with bugging. <laughs> I love a good, uh, I love a good, like, fit rhyme. Like, um, Kanye uh, pronouncing what is he? Uh, don't ever fix fix your lips like collagen. You end up a polygen. Like like little things like that in hip hop that they can. There's an art to the manipulation of language that a lot yeah. of people don't want to give that credit to. And what's interesting is when it's intentional, we love giving it credit. You know, there's like you know our third time we're talking about how we love wordplay, but we mocked Michelle Branch's inability to. Like, Michelle Branch does that, yeah, yeah, thing at the end of every word. And sometimes it is how her rhymes function. That is true. That is very true. And we still pick on it because it seems unintentional because she can't help herself. In cases like this where it's 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 affectation and it's fun and it's playful and it's performance, we're all about it. Yeah, it's different than being the guy from Muse and you can hear every time he sharply inhales into the microphone... <laughs> Which now, uh, those of you Sorry. who are not Nico will never be able to unhear. You're welcome. Uh, but the next thing is Beanie Man, Feel It Boy, featuring your lady, Janet Jackson. I think yes, that on now. the first episode of Now, this was referenced. Um, so yes, it this was. Is a, this, we're going full circle with like one of the things that is the least... That is the least fun to go full circle with. Happy anniversary. So this was off of Beanie Man's like 15th or 16th album. I don't know enough about Beanie Man and you'll find out why in a minute. But um, and I I don't care enough to do the research. But in the bare minimum research I did on Beanie Man, uh, this was either his 15th or 16th album. Janet did this really generic, very forgettable track with him. Uh, What's more interesting about Beanie Man and more interesting about Janet, this this recording represents a major fluke for her after the velvet rope which was an incredibly personal album about dealing with depression um she she did a whole lot of duets she also had all for you um yep. that record uh which did not 
chart well after the first single. Around this time, she's acting pretty regularly, right? Yeah, she's acting pretty regularly. And she's doing a lot of guest spots with a lot of hip-hop artists. Mm -hmm. And not that I'm saying she didn't do her homework, but at the time she guest spotted with Beanie Man on this track, she was unaware that he had multiple songs calling for the murder and execution of all homosexuals for defying God and being child molesters. Yes, that is uh, a real thing that can – you can – wikipedia that up uh that is completely correct and she uh she kind of admits that she didn't do her homework on that because she apologized for it pretty quickly because her gay fan base is literally what paid her bills when she stopped being a big name so uh but i would like to say because this is the most important thing this really is the most important thing in 2015 beanie man said that he had he had sought help every homophobic thing he ever put in a song was a mistake well you know it's good that people can change it's never too late to get woke. It's important to remember you're going to regret the dumb shit you said before you were woke, no matter what. So get woke as soon as possible so you don't have a Janet Jackson Beanie Man situation on your record. I think that's, uh, is, there's not that much to say about this song itself. It's another Neptune's track, so. But it's, it's, it's such a Neptune's track that it gives you that chill island vibe and it feels like 10 other Neptune songs and it yes. feels like several other songs that, um, the song that I actually thought this was when I, when I first skimmed this now a couple of weeks ago was, um, Shaggy and Janet's Ooh Boy. I, I can see why that's a mis, that's a mistake. Yeah. I could see that. And that's not a bad song at all, other than, you know, the fact that no. Shaggy sings like this. It's not a bad... That's really good. You know what? I, as a little kid, thought Boombastic was the dumbest sounding song I'd ever heard. So I tried to learn to do Shaggy, and then I found out that that's not how he speaks at all. No, that's how he sings. No, I, say, I thought this was a better song and forgot that it wasn't. That's all. Yeah, it's it's catchy as a Neptune song is, but like you said, it does sound like a lot of Neptune songs, and it feels really hollow in that way. And the times that Janet Jackson's, like, that breathy, airy voice that I love, by the time that's there to fill in those gaps, like, it's it's almost too late. For, like, 14 seconds at a clip. You can't string enough of her elevating the song together to make it a listenable song. Yeah, you're not, she's not, this isn't a Kanye song, and that's not the drop-in hook sample mm-hmm. of a woman singing auto-tuned, so it's not enough to carry the song. Whereas, and I actually, I, this is going to be really funny. I love Gold Digger by Kanye and Jamie Foxx. I literally attribute the entire success of that song to Jamie Foxx. Hey, every word in that is some of the best lyrics. It's some of the best spitting Kanye's ever done. It's it's phenomenal performance. But what's the part that everybody goes around doing when the song comes on? It's the part everybody does. They do the hook. And uh, I think this is an example of where if you'd amped up your hook star, if you'd amped up your guest, you might have had a better song. But it's really difficult to say to somebody, hey, why don't you do less on your own song and give it more to this person that's better than you? Well, if we want to use the polar opposite of the Kanye song you mentioned, uh, I think he learned from that. And I'm sure we'll talk about this song. But um, American Boy, I think, is a great example of that. If Estelle isn't remembered as one of the coolest vocalists ever... I, I actually love her performance on that. That song is absolutely fantastic. And uh, even going to all of the lights in the future, he definitely uh, he definitely does take that step back that he should have taken on some other yeah. tracks. Uh, welcome back to Kanye Cast. Uh, <laughs> we're talking about Dirty <laughs> Vegas Days Go By. Days when I could live my life. 
for like 30 seconds because I've talked about how I don't really like this genre of music. It's not meant to be listened to. It's meant to be heard while you're dancing, and that's fine. But uh, for what we're doing, I, I, I can't think of much to say about it. That 30 seconds, that stretch to four minutes and 30 seconds, the first two times, it's cool. I actually love this song. Uh, I love this genre, as a matter of fact. It's totally cool that you don't. And it, it actually – it goes to a little bit of how we experience music and the way we process feelings and stuff. I like I randomly pick two lines from whatever song I'm listening to to make the status on my share of whatever I'm playing on Google Play Music. and uh, Or in 2002, your AOL away message. Yeah, exactly. Because I just – whatever I connect with, I express. Uh, there's a couple of songs that like if I share to my Facebook, I'll put – I'm not putting any lyrics because it's not about the lyrics for me with this song. Um, I think this song reminds me of Daniel Bedingfield's Gotta Get Through This. This song reminds me of just about – anything by lamb but probably most specifically gorecki it's it's about the way the beat fills you the lyrics don't need to be super stupendous it doesn't need to be a highly varied song what this song is able to convey it's so focused on this person no matter how much time goes on they're still stuck on that 30 seconds so it it, it's one of the only songs from this genre that works within the confines of its genre to elevate itself above its peers? Yes. Uh, it's. Uh, I could live with that. Yeah, it's sort of like if you wrote a, a haiku about puns that ends in a pun. It's using the rules that create limitations to express something clever. All right. All right. I'm, I'm not going to go back and listen to this again, but I'm, I'm sold. Okay, but now I want to, I just want to say that 100%, bro, I defer to you on this next one. She's your lady. <laughs> Uh, Kylie Minogue, Love at First Sight. Uh, last Kylie Minogue song, Anna Now, um, because this isn't the UK now that's up to like 345. You know, what do you have to say about this song? Well, it is my all-time favorite Kylie Minogue song. Uh, it is, it is my favorite single that she has ever released. Well, I don't know what was a single in the UK, um, but it's the best song off of Fever. Yeah, for sure. Uh, you know, Fever was like, it, cause I, I made it clear that I grew up in a parallel dimension from everybody else our age by now, I think. So I right. grew up super into like 70s and 80s TV and game shows and all this weird shit. So. I was like super into Neighbors because I thought it was really funny to be into foreign soap operas. And then I got super – anyway, when I got much older, I got super into McLeod's Daughters. But that's neither here nor there. So um, I actually want to talk about foreign soap operas on the next song, but that's interesting. Go on. Oh, but I'm talking about Australian soap operas. I'm talking about Neighbors, which was like a really oh, long – Oh, sorry. Movie. I meant uh, – I oh, want to – I know. You want to talk, talk about, about telenovelas. You want to talk about yes. telenovelas with Objection Tango. Uh, oh, when yeah. I tell you that – Objection Tango is one of the most mocked songs of all time, down to Crazy Ex-Girlfriend did an Objection Tango bit last season. Neighbors is just this, like, semi-trashy 80s and 90s, might have even been in the 70s, um, Australian soap that I had enough access to books and, you know, the minor internet articles that used to exist, and I could download clips in real, uh, for real player. But I had to get my parents to put me on an adult setting so that I could use Netscape Navigator, so that I could use the Netscape Navigator <laughs> Real Player Real Plug Real One plugin uh, thing. 
But so when all of a sudden Kylie Minogue was popular again, I'm like, you mean the locomotion lady? Yeah, exactly. You mean I should be so lucky? Mm-hmm. Like, you mean the lady from Neighbors who isn't Natalie Imbruglia? I was really confused because all of a sudden she was popular and gaunt and had flat hair. And, um... Yeah, she kind of had a Jesse Spano thing going in the 80s. Uh, gay people loved her anyway, but couldn't tell you fucking why. I get it now. I think Kylie Minogue is uh, remarkably talented and remarkably fun. She gives more to her fans than just about any artist, like, period. Um, I forget what show Kylie Minogue just inked a multiple episode storyline on. It's like a kid's show or something. Or like a, uh, She was on Gallivant. That's what it is. It's a musical, not a kid's show. Uh, and I think it's because oh. her husband stars in it or produces it or writes it, something. Um, but she's just somebody who – she's got to be pushing 50 by now. Yes. Uh, she – She. I mean, Fever was when she was probably in her mid to late 30s already. And it's one of the most recognizably catchy dance records I can think of. Oh, yeah. We've we talked a lot about how great Can't Get You Out of My Head is. This I think I like more, but that's probably the better pure radio pop song. And you know what? Can't get you out of my head encapsulate. Okay, so um, sometimes when I talk about the way I experience music being through color and stuff, um, can't get you out of my head is a Sunday night at two in the morning when you have a final at 730 the next day. And there was this there was this girl and you guys like if you flirted before, but like you definitely couldn't stop flirting on Friday. And then somehow you managed to see her Saturday and a Sunday you're trying to play it cool and you haven't talked to her. But it's like clawing at you and it's this red feeling creeping mm-hmm. up from the pit of your stomach and it's constantly creeping into your neck and you're getting flush and you know she's why you can't sleep and there's nothing you can do. But like – and like you can only masturbate so many times and it's just mm-hmm. not going to get better. And Kylie Minogue is the best representation of that feeling I have heard with Can't Get You Out of My Head since Benny Mardonis is Into the Night. And uh, so Kylie Minogue just – manages to connect with every age demographic manages to 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 do just about anything um now for everything i said about the darkness and the intensity and the like you know if man if only i could just get real high i wouldn't have to think about this person of can't get you out of my head uh and it does kind of represent like a drug feeling especially the 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 way she breathes into the won't you stay and like you know fades away Mm. into it it's it, it's about embracing your own sexual oblivion, in a way. Yeah, it fades into that really pulsating, rhythmic donk that the uh, that it has going for it. Yeah, and, you know, who hasn't climaxed like that? So, then Love at First Sight is a celebration of excessive joy. It is a purer experience, even if Can't Get You Out of My Head is a purer pop song. Love at First Sight I mean, is, is, is not about the darkness that pulls in you. It's about... Getting up and dancing and singing in a very rock your body Justin Timberlake kind of way. So I love how the production of the song kind of drops away at times to allow her voice, which, you know, as much as I love Kylie Minogue, I think she's kind of Britney-esque in that her voice isn't, it's very breathy, it's a little nasally, it's, she shouldn't do like a national anthem in front of 10 million people, she doesn't have that kind of run ability. So yeah, just an, an, an impeccably crafted pop song. And when it comes back from that dropping away and it just crashes in with the chorus, that is that kind of moment of exuberance uh, encapsulated in a pop song better than a lot of uh, almost anything I could think of. And it's it. this does what I think Teenage Dream does. Oh, that's a great comparison, actually. It's, Good riff in there. Great, uh, great lyrics paired with the, the melody. Yeah. 
the beauty of the experience of the the tenderness of a kiss. Yeah, yeah. That's what this song does for me, especially her. Uh, I I tend to dislike over vocalization at the end of songs. Um, maybe because I went to the school of Mariah, so I think there's a way it should be done in a way it shouldn't be done. Kylie, for her thin voice, really, really hits on the head what I love about this song in her vocal celebration of joy in her outro vocals. Literally not a bad thing about it. We talked about this briefly on the last episode of the Can't Get You Out of My Head video. Her videos are just very different than what American pop girls are doing at this time. Um, in those videos, you get a lot of the camera moving on to the artist and like up her in a lot of ways or like over her. And in Kylie Minogue videos, the camera is stationary and she attacks the camera. Um, and I think that carries this, that, that also portrays this confidence that she has in all of her songs. And also the fact that in the video and in the performance, it just sounds like she's having fun. Uh, and that was kind of missing from a lot of pop at this time in America. And I, I don't mean this dismissively. I, I'm here, like, what I'm hearing you say is the pop divas were girls who were being told to behave as this woman character in this video and they were selling identities yes that's exactly what i'm saying they were selling identities to package their their sound with kylie minogue's sound was pretty seriously whatever the fuck kylie minogue felt like making because while we're saying that she disappeared from america for 15 years she remained enormous in australia oh yeah and so uk as well all of europe yeah when we're getting her back, we're getting her back seasoned. We're getting her at her Shakira in terms yes. of what we were saying about Shakira having done. Brittany is being told she needs to perform sexually here and she needs to be subtle here and she needs to be um, delicate here and strong there. And Kylie Minogue is coming out and saying, I'm a subtle, sexual, clever, daring, all these adjectives. I am all those things. I'm not playing at anything. You can watch me in my amazing 20 years of career celebrating loving who I am, or you can turn it off. And the pop princesses at this time didn't have the luxury of saying, or you could turn it off. So their performances were strangled out. Exactly. Isn't it? I mean, that's that's what I'm saying. Like, you're exactly right. That is what you were saying is exactly what I was kind of beating around. It's that it unfortunately takes 15 years uh, if that longevity is remotely possible, which 99% of the time it's not going to be, before they remotely have any agency in just the way that they are viewed through a lens. I'm eating a cookie, but I completely agree. I guess, you know, that's a good enough time. You mentioned her. Let's go into Shakira's obsession, Tango. <laughs> sketch that parodies this song i implore you to look up the season one crazy ex-girlfriend song that uh references this song um it is uh it is pathetic it's sardonic it's sadistic and psychotic tango's not for three was never <laughs> meant to be but you could try it rehearse it or train like a horse but don't you count on me, don't you count on me, boy. Yeah, that's super hard to get behind. <laughs> I think the Spanish language version of the song is, is significantly better. 
It's it's beyond significantly better. It's a completely unrelated listening experience in a lot of ways. Seriously, it doesn't sound like the same song at all. So there's something I found out that makes a lot of sense due to uh, Wiki Wiki Wow Wowpedia. Um, this is the first English language, like first, like not translated, just the first English language song uh, that she wrote for this album, uh, which after she was encouraged by Gloria Stefan to try to make that leap. And this does sound like a song when you listen to the fully Spanish language version and the, the Americanized version, or I guess the opposite way. Um, it sounds like someone who has not written in that language before. It does. The, the, the flow of the lyrics is like smashed in. Like someone's trying to sing a Gilmore girl script. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I like that. That's a really good analogy. It's just too much, too much to sing in one. uh, You don't have that many, like you don't have that much meter to like to spare. It's like who, stop. Who here grew up Catholic, right? And you go to church, and your cantor sings the lyrics, and they are all from a psalm, <laughs> so that they have to be made to fit into each line. It does not matter yes, how many exactly. syllables there need to go in the line; it has to fit, so it must be all of the words in the psalm. That's kind of what this feels like. Yeah, meshed with a video that's just like uh, I was going to say a bad version of "Bitch Better Have My Money," but I guess that came later so it's a good version of this i think the other thing to realize is this was the third single off of an album that nobody had necessarily expected to be the breakthrough mega smash it was you always hope for the the breakthrough mega smash like when you when you put a million dollars into shakira recording an album you're hoping to make back five million but the reality is 99 percent of the time like you said you're not making that money back so when shakira resonated with not just latin americans but with white America and made herself some good money and then had phenomenal crossover. It's still about a budget and about a dollar figure at the end of the day. This was the third video off of this album. It looks like the cheap third video from this album. When I think about Justin Timberlake's solo singles in order, it's um, Like I Love You, where he makes a reference to wanting to get head, and that's real hot. Um, And that's also Neptune's. It's a really fun video and it's like he's having like a like a dance party in the street and shit crimea river which is very very atmospheric very directed and then it's rock your body which looks like it was made with a ten dollar strobe from the party store and some mirrors at walmart and there's nothing wrong with that but it's the cheap third video this was the song that made me turn on shakira and be like i really like her talent but it is absurdly bad lyricism yeah, this is this is the first big miss for me. Um, like I said, I wonder how much of that is also watching the video at the same time, uh, and also because the English language one is just is so bad. Like the, the Spanish language one is is the way to go uh, every time uh, because the English language, it's just it's so bad. It's hard to explain how bad it is. There's also this aspect of the song that's entirely tonal and entirely based around the fact that I don't have the same cultural background as the artist performing it. It's only my own fault there's like this melodrama to this song and embracing melodrama with no irony whatsoever is more prevalent in latin culture you see that with telenovelas you see that even with i love professional wrestling i can't super get into lucha libre because of that either so there's this part of of my brain that's like this should have its tongue in cheek a little this is a little silly right but it's played totally straight and it kind of just takes me out of it a little bit and that's just, I understand that's entirely on me. Yeah, because, like, I, I grew up with this stuff, so I'm like, I get it. It's, people are constantly, like, about my writing, they're like, don't you think your writing's ever melodramatic? And I'm like, that's 
Nothing. You you should watch a telenovela. You'll uh Yeah, you've never seen the face transplant uh arc from Mi Corazon, okay? Yeah, kinda sort of. Kind of like seriously. So yeah, I I I really dig Shakira's new album. It's a super great album, so I'm in a really great Shakira place, so I'm even pulling my punches on this song right now. This is the first Shakira miss for me, but it's not even that bad. It's not the most egregiously bad song on this record. The English language version is, though. It really is. Oh, I don't, but I'm saying I don't even think that Projection Tango is the worst song on this record. I mean, like, this now. Oh, no. This is not, not even the close. lowest point of now 11. Exactly. So, ultimately, it's a win. Do you think it's interesting, speaking of the, the meta aspect and looking at the idea of what now is, do you think it's interesting that they don't have that, um, you know, again, we always refer to the the fat record exec, the, the urban sec- section. This is the first time it's front-loaded and not in the middle. Do you think that's interesting? Ali- Aaliyah and Genuine are 12 and 13. And while it's not the same thing, Nora Jones, daughter of producer Quincy Jones, right there at number 14. There's always this kind of down-tempo, I would argue, down-quality part of the nows, where they just kind of ham-fist some R&B yeah. that has no, like, no, it did not, this, this R&B that did not make it. Like, it died yeah. in the womb, and this is the womb. I'm excited that we're getting that change, because I thought that they could pick stuff. I, I'd said a bunch of times, like, this era of R&B was not great, and I th- are we moving into a better time for that. Is that what this is kind of signifying? And I guess also, as you'll see on volume two, a a way worse time for rock music. Mary J. Blige's family affair is a major turning point for hip hop on the radio. So are are we just catching up to that now? Yes. Cool. I'm into it. Um, No doubt underneath it all. First and hopefully last ska song on an hour, even though I bet it won't be. Gwen Stefani sounds like whoever's telling her to sound like what she's supposed to sound like, which is why there is no subsequent No Doubt single ever again that sounds like it could have been on Tragic Kingdom. Correct. Yeah. In fact, they quickly make a a, a switch to a more digital, like, you know, New was not a big hit, um, even though it was their first single in three years. Yeah, Return to Saturn is definitely the album where they are like, oh, shit, oh, shit, oh, shit, oh, shit. What do we do? What do we do? What do we do? We don't have our captain anymore, so now we need to craft our own sound. I don't care for this song. I, I really do not care for No Doubt after Eric Stefani, and I do not particularly care for Gwen Stefani. And it's nothing against her. I, You know I love powerful women, and you know I love women who redefine their genre. I think that Gwen Stefani committed one of the most egregious acts of appropriation ever. Just with the entire Rocksteady thing? No, with Harajuku or girls. The, oh, the Harajuku. Okay, so that one. Yeah, okay. We'll get there. For fuck's sake, we will get there. The fascistic usage of young Asian women as poodles in handbags is insulting. She's had it rough. She was married to Gavin Rossdale and um, you know, that that was a really public breakup that she couldn't do anything about. She's realized... Most thoughts and fucking prayers. <laughs> she, uh, she transitioned out of being a musician and now she talks about being a musician professionally. <laughs> She released an album yeah. this year that people said was really powerful, but I kind of felt like people were saying it was really powerful in that way that people told Scott Stapp that his lyrics were really powerful so they could suck his dick afterward. I don't I don't really connect with what Gwen Stefani does anymore, but that's neither here nor there. I think this song is one of those examples of Gwen Stefani does not have an identity. She has guest features. Is she doing country music yet? 
Because, I mean, like, kind of what you said, I agree with you with her not having a real identity, and she's married to a country guy right now. Is she doing country music yet? I feel like that's happening, and we don't know it. I do believe she has guest spotted on a couple of his tracks. So, yeah, I mean, I'm sure she chameleons herself into that role now as well. So, uh, a couple episodes ago, I said, oh, it's, it's funny, we've got, like, a Stir of Echoes Sixth Sense thing underneath it all and underneath your clothes both coming up. Uh, and I was like, I think underneath it all was better. I was so wrong. So wrong, and I'm sorry. Forever being that wrong and you know what sucks lady saw is actually super great and i actually really dig lady saw and she is not enough to save this song in fact she is somehow the worst in a song that sounds like so many people faking it her being genuine sounds so out of place in this saccharine splenda track that she makes my head spin and the worst part is, is that any radio station that was playing this song at that time her. was cutting that verse out yeah. because God forbid a fucking mom who has 10 minutes in her SUV between dropping one kid off at soccer practice and, a and picking Hunter up from dance and popping a Xanax. Uh, God forbid they hear a black person on their commute lest they drive their Escalade off the fucking highway. Meanwhile, it's actually one of the sweetest, most like one of the sweetest, kindest Things you could have heard on the radio at this time. You're a real Prince Charming, like the light from the fire you were always burning. For for 2002, which is still, you know, in that in that era where we said that the war in Iraq caused I'm a slave for you. <laughs> we're still in the right yep. era for, for things to be angry and mean. And this is actually a really... The work is beautiful. The song is shit. I think I am willing to give it a little bit more space, like a little bit more of a curve than you are. Uh, I don't outright hate it, but I don't think it's great, especially after we just had Hella Good, which I know you said you didn't like No Doubt after that. I think that song no, does no, its Hella job. Hella Good is actually a pretty badass song. Yeah, that song does its job. Um, and you've also got Running on this album that's going to be a single. I don't know if it's going to be on it now, but that's it's okay. Right. It is very different. All Right is going to be Gwen Stefani's ceiling for a long time. Well, I think what you're waiting for is phenomenal. Positive? It's a Neptune's thing? Uh, I don't know. We'll see. Stay tuned. I think Four in the Morning is really beautiful. Uh, it might be the most Gwen Stefani song I've ever heard. It's from her second album. It's called Four in the Morning, and it changes keys a couple times, and I think it's probably her best work. It's the only thing she's ever done that sounds like it, and that leaves me very sad. You gotta get on that key change, baby. Key change! That really was. I need- Okay, so ready? If Chris tells you to do it, you go do it. Because when I watched Key Change from the- uh, Michael Bolton Valentine's Day special, my life was changed. Yeah, it's it's pretty incredible. It's uh, actually every- the best. I could not understand how you said it was the best piece of musical comedy you maybe remember seeing. It is literally the best piece of musical comedy I've ever seen. Every key change in a song before that was just a prologue, and now every key change in a song after that will only be an epilogue. I think, much like you yielded to me on Kylie, I think you get the floor on Jennifer Love Hewitt's Bare Naked. If you're out there and you're saying, wait, 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 wait. Jennifer Love Hewitt? Uh, I still know what you did last summer is Jennifer Love Hewitt? Yes. So when Jennifer Love Hewitt was discovered back in 1991, her name was Love Hewitt, and she went by Love Hewitt because that's what everybody called her, because she was just so full of love. And she was discovered by, I believe, Nike, who made her their singer on their Japanese shoe tour, and they took her to Japan with a bunch of giant NBA players and singing songs like um, 
well, about shoes. And then um, she recorded an album called Love Songs, and it's a horrific thing to do to someone you love. So I've done it to my husband a million times. Anyway, she comes over to America. She does Party at Five. She's, you know, cute, young, pretty. She's got really, really thin hair. They have her release an album called Let's Go Bang. Let's Go Bang is, of course, terrific. And I've explained to you all about the bang. Also, see episode one. Right. This is a great anniversary. Thank you for having me on this one. Woo! Pew, 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 pew. Um, right, dude? If I had known it was going to be like a special anniversary, I'd have worn something sexy. So, um, so then her third album is super generic acoustic pop crap. But it is the one where she says that if Anne Frank had loved harder, she could have beaten Hitler. Wait, and- wait. You can't just gloss over that. Okay, the lyrics are, in 1942, a demon army trampled through every inch of her forgotten town. Her family, her family hid away, a secret place above decay. And there they lived in, I think, fear, without a sound. She learned to write that year, with every scream she dare not hear, and every tortured soul she'd one day meet. But then one day the soldiers came and marched her family to the train, and she left a dying light in the street, and it read, I believe in love. Quote the raven nevermore. I mean, it's pretty stupid. So, um... She did the I Know What You I Still Know What You Did Last Summer soundtrack. She had a song called How Do I Deal. It was when she was dating Carson Daly, so the music video got a ton of rotation on MTV because that's when he was on MTV. Nobody was willing to accept Jennifer Love Hewitt, star of this bad um, sequel to a mediocre horror film, as a singer. And they really pushed it away, and it ultimately canceled her, her what was to be third American record, fourth record. A couple of years later, we get Bare Naked, which... Is just one of those things, that's what she did. But back in the day, when you stopped being famous, you had to show your breasts. Period. See the movie Showgirls by Paul Verhoeven. <laughs> no, seriously, see it. It's great. No, it's it's phenomenal, and I actually have the cable edit in Spanish. Oh my god, with the airbrushed in bikinis and stuff? Yes. Oh, but I god, have it I in bet that, sap. <laughs> I bet you could sell that for uh, money. I, I have it on VHS somewhere. I'll have to find it. Yeah, you're selling the hipsters. They want it in VHS. 100%. It's it's one of those things. I also have Roger Corman's Fantastic Four on VHS. So um, uh, as much as I love my vaunted Jennifer Love Hewitt, this is the point at which I was like, okay, I was 18 and need to get over it. Or whatever, it was 12. Um, I, I think this is an incredibly forgettable average song by what sounds like an incredibly average artist and i don't think there is anything to write home about this made this now exclusively because her name was jennifer love hewitt and she would later whisper to ghosts she would and actually this song appears twice in the show the ghost whisperer according to wiki wiki wawapedia so does that mean that jennifer love hewitt exists canonically in the ghost whisperer world which means that this character is constantly off camera getting people coming up to her and be like thank you so much for talking to grandpa did you know you look like the girl from party of five (laughs) bare naked is exactly the song that all of those like crossover actresses make first it sounds exactly like so yesterday it sounds exactly like pieces of me i love that you Um, keep naming people's second and third singles uh, after saying it's the first, because it's that's how amateurish these are. We are literally saying they sound like they should be your first ever attempt to record sound, and they're not. The lyrics- so it's when someone's given up and is just like, just fucking try this yep. just vapid, bereft, acoustic thing. I mean, the lyrics are seriously, I'm bare naked, and I can't take it, I'm getting faded, no, I just can't. It's like, seriously, so fucking amateur. 
And it's, it's impressive when you're lyrically dumber and less vocally competent and more poorly produced than like pieces of me. Um, yeah, you know, I, and I like uh, that. I, I like that song. Actually, I actually do I will... too. I kind of like Ashley Simpson's music despite hating her as a person. Nickopedia, can we beat you? Who is the songwriter on Bare Naked that has a very well known 90s one hit wonder? Jeez, you know, I honestly don't know, but give me a minute. I feel okay. like it had to be somebody she would have wanted to work with. Is it a man or a woman? Woman. Okay. I'll give you the year if you need it, but then I'll, I need a guess. I'll take the year and then I'll give you a guess. 1997. A female with a big one-hit wonder in 1997. The only thing I can come up with is Joan Osborne. Ah, uh, you know what? That's a good guess, but it's uh, bitch's own Meredith Brooks. And you know why I failed? Because I can name four Meredith Brooks songs. <laughs> <laughs> It, it led me to this revelation, um, though, while I was thinking about something like So Yesterday or Pieces of Me, which are songs that I, I genuinely like, but they came out a bit later. I feel like it got easier for me to listen to pop music, like, the older I got, because, like, in high school, I feel like I was all about sincerity, you know? Like, that was what punk was. It was, like, the most sincere thing, which, of course, now we know. Um, yeah, it's, it's sincere, as sincere as you can be about two subjects ever. Right. And, and college, you start to embrace that, like, the irony and people assume that me playing a Hillary Duff song at my live show uh, is supposed to be tongue-in-cheek and not, like, way more sincere than anything that I had actually done at 16. Yeah, I'm pretty serious about loving Benny Mardonis' Into the Night. So serious that this is the second reference. It's a callback, in case you don't know what those are. No, I, uh, I, I, I really do completely get what you're saying. Uh, for me, it was never so much that I, I, I didn't listen to those things. It was harder for me to admit to people that weren't you or Heather, uh, that I loved those things to get me to be able to say to people, yeah, I, I, I really like, like underground New York eighties, late eighties hip hop and early nineties dance music. It's no big deal. But as an adult, I'm like, no, I can absolutely tell you one of my all time favorite pieces of music ever is everybody, everybody by black box. But there is a freedom in in aging yourself out of caring about what the fuck other people think of the music on your phone. Yeah. Uh, when I so Chris so Chris changed my life. Side story. He can totally edit this out. I used to be like three hundred pounds and awkward and uncomfortable in my own skin. And um, basically, this guy over here was like, "Dude, I love you. Come to the gym with me, please." I did because we went to the same gym at the time. And uh, instead of just walking for an hour on the treadmill at two miles an hour, you made me do other things. Now, I think Chris can attest, uh, I am 70% fitness, 30% vinegar. When I first started going to the gym, I was literally afraid to have my music loud, that people would hear it and judge me. Uh, as I described at the beginning of this episode, I just kind of dance up to people listening to Janet. I'm like, hey, what's up? We are the Rhythm Nation. Need a spot? <laughs> and... Um, yeah, I think you did just nail something really honest, something really um, – you lose that fear. Yeah, and like like I said, in college, you there's that shield of irony, but that's like kind of easing – that's the training wheels of easing you into just not giving a shit. You know, I don't think I even had the irony phase. I think like – You definitely did not have the irony phase. I <laughs> yeah, I think I was kind of like one day I woke up and I was like, why doesn't everyone like Jennifer Love Hewitt's music? Yeah, um, oh man, uh, Ordinary Day by Vanessa Carlton. Vanessa Carlton is one of those things that really is hard to talk about because she had so much potential and it was, it, and it turns out she didn't. 
Vanessa Carlton uh, first makes it big with the, one of the most recognizable piano riffs this side of Coldplay's Clocks. Um, oh, wow. You referenced the exact two... You, <laughs> episode 10B is not out yet because I'm in the process of editing it, and we reference... We say all of those words exactly in that order. That uh, A Thousand Miles and Clocks are basically one song? Well, they're the last recognizable like piano riffs from mainstream radio. A hundred percent. She She's making it big on this underground circuit, doing all these crazy demos, and she has this showcase, and she does this... And she does this seven-song showcase in L.A., and she walks away from it with a record deal. But she almost exclusively walks away from it with a record deal because of A Thousand Miles, which at the time is like two and a half minutes, and it's called Interlude. She She's sort of part of that um, Michelle Branch sort of movement. So when they first started to release uh, Vanessa Carlton's music and her album Be Not Nobody mm-hmm. was first solicited, it was solicited as a rinse, and it had a different track listing. And the label was like, this is goddamn messy. This album is not going to be a hit. They pulled the album. They changed it to Be Not Nobody. Um, it features the worst cover I have ever heard of anything in my entire life. Ooh. And that is her cover of Paint It Black. Oh. Is no. like, seriously, at the end, she's just going, paint it, paint it. Wait, over wait. And over. It's... We do this on the show now sometimes. We just look stuff up live and have reactions oh, to dude. it. Oh, dude. It is literally one of the worst covers of all time. So uh, all of you guys, come with me to cageclub.me and click on the link for Vanessa Carlton's Paint It Black. Whoa. Whoa. What's up with the all-bass intro? Oh, wow. <laughs> this is this is fantastically bad. Oof. Jump to that, like, toward the end for me, just so you can hear what I mean by she's just screaming at that point. Okay. Oh, wow. This is... uh. Take the now and again challenge, folks, and see how long you can get through that song. Woof. And what's really interesting is that style, that performance, that delivery. Uh, it sounds a lot like several songs on that record that actually turned out pretty good. She just sort of like screams throughout parts of it, and she doesn't have a screaming voice, and no. it sounds really abrasive. Mm-hmm. So Vanessa Carlton is this this thing that they tried to sell. Sounds like a Teddy Ruxpin with the batteries dying. Yes, seriously, yes. You know, not to compare anybody to her, because I think that's a bad move, but she was a little bit closer to a Tori Amos in terms of it's okay to scream in the middle of a song for no reason. That is not how they marketed her. In fact, her three singles from this album were the only three soft, chill fucking songs on the album. Ah, interesting. And that means the album sounds nothing like the singles. So there's 11 tracks on the album, three singles, and then eight that sound the same. And they all sort of sound like that painted black cover. Oof. Yeah, not all like screaming. Ordinary Day is stunningly juvenile. Um, yeah, this is this is beyond generic in terms of a song. La la ah over and over again throughout the song. That's ah the whole song. That's just the only noise yep. she seems to make. Ah over and over. I can't imagine that this wasn't born just, like, screaming, give me radio play from the womb with, like, just afterbirth still dripping off of it. Like, this was shot directly to the radio. This is so targeted. I actually think this was one of the songs that she performed at her showcase. I think it was this. If if her showcase was so many years before and she was, like, 15, then it makes more sense. One. It was, like, one year before. Oh, gee, I fuck it. I don't care. So let's go from what I just heard and you just heard, listener. Uh, as a really terrible cover, uh, probably a very contentious cover. The best cover ever! All right, well, th- I'm actually with you on this being good cover, but I bet there's a lot of people that would say no. Uh, it is 
Landslide by the Dixie Chicks. I think covers are inherently bad, and let me say why. Uh, have you ever read a cover of a book? And I don't mean a book's cover, but have you ever read a book that was just another person openly and publicly admitting they're just rewriting the book? Yes, it's called um, Pride and Prejudice and Zombies, and I never actually read that because that's really fucking stupid. There you go. Um, Shot-for-shot remakes. We're very, very picky about shot-for-shot remakes of movies, right? Uh, I only like the ones that have shots of Vince Vaughn jerking off. Oh, man, I just... Why are we so willy-nilly with covers of songs? And if you tell me one more time, it's because a song is three minutes and you don't have to listen to it for that long. No, it sticks with you forever. You never lose that. It's burned into your head. You shouldn't do a cover for no reason. I can think of two good reasons to do a cover. You can either do a cover to put a new spin on a song that deserves a new spin, but a new spin, a point of view. Right, and changing changing keys, changing um, the sex of the singer, a lot of things can recontextualize a song and make it interesting. And if I can, I actually love it when artists don't change the sex of a song. Like when um, uh, Sixpence and the Richer did There She Goes and they kept it she. Oh, I, I really hate when people do that, like do the opposite of what you're saying. Yeah, I think there was nothing wrong. I I do think there's times it's cool. There are times it's cool to switch it because it does change the statement. Like we've talked about how Robin's um, Call Your Girlfriend, if a gay dude sings it, it's really kind of sinister. Yeah. But if a man were to sing Call Your Boyfriend to a woman, it would change it in a really sinister way as well. Yeah. So I, exactly. I do think there are, there are ways to do it that are cool. You need to be purposefully making a change, not... And not entering a binary kind of gender phobic. Exactly. I, I, I can't, I really hate that I can't remember what the name of the song was now. Um, there's a song that, but Taylor Swift was doing a cover of it and she changed it to like, she, she changed it to make sure everyone knew she had the not gays. Like she changed all the pronouns in it. And I really like, who gives a shit enough to like change the song in, in that way when you're not doing anything interesting with it to begin with? If, if you Who can't cares? cover this song with with a genuineness without worrying about what people are going to think of your genitals because of the pronoun you used, you don't exactly. have a right to cover that song because you're not covering the heart of it. You're covering your portion of it. Yes. And that is where covers – that is the part where covers can straight up go fuck themselves. If they are either doing it exactly the same way, they are not doing it – anything remotely different that makes it stand out on its own – or they're doing it for no reason. Yeah. Like, if one more person does a dance cover of Fast Car, I'm going to find them and I'm going to club them. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, there's there's so much stuff like that. And, and we've talked about why covers work, why they don't. That actually maybe could be an EP in the future. I'm going to put a little note about that. But So what is it about Landside? Because you are a Stevie Nicks head. Yes. I don't, I'm a Stevie Nixon. You're Stevie Nixon. So I, I'm not, so I don't know the intricacies, the ins and outs. I've never heard a live version. I'm not even sure if the version that I know the best in my head is live or album. Um, you probably know and, the live version from the dance, which was the live record they did when they reunited in the late nineties. Right. Where like Silver Spring comes from? Well, not where Silver Spring comes from. Well, the, the great version of Silver Spring. The Sorry. live version that everyone knows because the original B-side is just as good. I'm sorry. Sorry, Fleetwood Mac Daddy. Fleetwood Mac Daddy is the greatest thing you've ever called me. Yep. 
And I, I don't know that I can express to you the sexual gratification I get from that. I kind of actually have an emotional story to tell. It's actually a, a really sweet emotional story, too. Okay. So Tori, as the penultimate song at her 40th birthday, Ben Folds, who had opened, brought out a birthday cake and sang happy birthday to her and stuff. It was a really special show. And her daughter came out and her husband came out. It was really special. So she's like, I, I kind of have always said I would do this and I can't, I can't not do this. So it's my 40th birthday. So I'm going to play landslide. And she literally started crying when she got to the part where she said, I'm getting older too. And she sort of stopped playing and mm. she just kind of looked at the audience for a moment and sort of clasped her hands, at the piano, and then just went back to playing the rest of the song. And it was like the first time at 18 days away from starting college. And I had just kind of broken up with my high school friend group and Nothing in my life made any sense that I understood. And here was this incredible woman saying, hey, you know what? This song is from 1975, and it says that this woman didn't have the answers then. And when she sings it now, she still doesn't have the answers. This song is about how no one has the answers. And this came at the hardest time in the Dixie Chicks' career. Yes. This came yes. at a, a – we made the joke about – I make the joke repeatedly about the weapons of mass destruction being the cause of all pop music. But – the Dixie Chicks being country artists said, hey, we're country artists, but we're Democrats and fuck this war. Fuck it. We have people dying. Why are you all celebrating death? And their career was destroyed. Yeah, they were run out of town and out of the country music scene um, just due to their politics. And uh, look, that's a thing that happens today. And it's a whole nother topic in, in a lot of ways is someone's political opinions versus where they like the art they produce and how you separate that uh, but their career was destroyed because of it what actually matters for me is not only was this song a massive hit the dixie chicks took a chance and opened their mouths up about what they believed in and they were told to shut the fuck up like we always seem to tell right. women despite being women in a male-dominated genre despite being political pariahs the Dixie Chicks said, we're not going anywhere. And they released this cover of what is easily one of the most recognizable and famous songs of all time. And they don't just cover it. They transform it into a personal statement. I, I, have, I have not, my, my arm hair has not settled down at any point this conversation. I mean, and the interesting thing is that actually hasn't even happened yet. So this song will take on. This song, I think the fact that one of them is pregnant in the video... I think I think that's kind of hinting at the initial idea. It's like we are getting older. We're becoming mothers. We still don't have all the answers. Um, it's going to be forced into a whole different meaning in about six months. Yeah, it's it's a really unbelievable cover. It's a really, really unbelievable cover. And uh, it, it the single from their next album is called like Still Not Ready to Make Nice or Not Ready to Make Nice, something like that. Yeah, they have an album called Shut Up and Sing, which I think is pretty funny. We have to say a lot of really positive things about the bravery, the strength, and the unfalteringness of the Dixie Chicks. And when I think about the, sev the severe emotional intensity that they put behind this song, it is really difficult to ignore. Now, that's something I was actually going to ask. Um, other than the, the Dolly-esque hellscape that one of them is stuck in in the music video, um, the thing that stuck out to me the most is how many harmonies there were. Does the original have that? No. I, I couldn't remember them. Okay. So I was, so my, my one note was that I think they traded a more moving vocal performance for layered harmonies. And to me, that's not a net gain. Objectively, they're doing their own thing. 
And I think that's more important. I think it's that Natalie Maine's voice isn't the same kind of emotive as Stevie Nicks. Yeah, to be fair, it's whose is. Like, yeah. I, I can't, you know, it's pretty great heights. I can't take off that many points, and I'm not. Billy Corgan's version! came to me. Fuck. Are you familiar with you... Billy Corgan's version? Nope, and I'm not going to, because you've already made me listen to one Who terrible cover. Been of course. Changing. Thanks for listening, and if you've made it this far, you've probably been here a little bit longer. So thanks for going on this ride with me the last year. It's been full of ups and downs, mostly downs, but I've really enjoyed talking to the people that I've talked to and meeting some of the people that I've met, if you count podcasting with them, meeting them. I'm Chris Podcasts. I'm at InstaChapman on Twitter. Liner notes for this podcast and more can be found at cageclub.me. Nico's comic book Kid Riot can be found at thedemonhotel.com, and you can find his band The Action Duo, any places you can stream music and kick him a tenth of a cent. We will be back next week, and as always, we will catch you on the flip side.